Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Witch Hassle, the first episode of 2021, and what a year it has already been. I'm just exhausted, but we must still remain optimistic because we are in that moment of unwhispered wonder where the year is still a mystery whose true face will not be revealed to us except as it emerges through the mists of time. Got a great interview for you today. I'm talking to Fez Inkwright about Fez's new book, Botanical Curses and Poisons, The Shadow Lives of Plants, where we get into the various ways that plants can be used to harm and to kill, but also the spirits associated with various members of the vegetable kingdom as they conspire against us. So that was a lovely, a lovely chat. I'm very excited to bring it to you. And Fez's book, Botanical Curses and Poisons, is officially coming out in February. I am told there are some advanced copies floating about, so I don't know if you can grab one now, but if you can't, at least get those pre-order digits ready. And we there's actually a lot of book news coming out right now. So Andrew Watt, who I have interviewed, I'm going to be putting that interview in a future episode coming very soon, has an almanac out. That is that is out. You can get that, I think, right now. Also, the Witch's Almanac, a different, a different almanac thing, has announced that they're going to be putting out a reprint of Hyatt's Hoodoo Conjuration Witchcraft and Root Work, which is very exciting. If you're not familiar with this, this was a study of root workers, uh, conjurers, hoodoo practitioners that was done primarily between 1936 and 1940. There's some supplementary interviews in it uh, from 1970. And it's a collection that, you know, it's five volumes in its original form, almost 5,000 pages long, is said to have over 13,000 separate magic spells and folkloric beliefs. It's it's based around interviews uh, with about 1,600 informants. So like this just really replete trove of knowledge about hoodoo and root work and folklore. And it came out in 1975 volumes. Not surprisingly, a bit hard to get your hands on. A physical copy it can be pretty expensive. So it is very cool that this new version is coming out. Apparently, it is not just Hyatt studies, but also a dissertation by Michael Edward Bell, Pattern, Structure, and Logic in Afro-American Hoodoo Performance from 1980. And it also has... You, when you, if you were to get this book from the Witch's Almanac, their version of it, which is coming out in 13 little snippets, you also get access to MP3s of, or I guess one single MP3 of an interview, and you also get access to searchable files that give you a sort of computer searchable version of Hoodoo, Conjuration, Witchcraft, and Rootwork, which is very exciting. The one, the one caveat with the new Witch's Almanac version is that it is $1,400, which if, if you're like me and you're, you're a person who doesn't really focus that much on maintaining or maximizing their material substance, so to speak, that's a bit, it's a bit of an ask. So I do feel like I would be remiss if I did not tell you that the original 1970 version of Hyatt's study 
is available for free online if you go to archive.org or you just ask me and I'll send you the PDFs. So you could you could not buy this new edition if you wanted to and just get the old stuff for free and even do what I did, which is, you know, download a PDF, send it to a print shop and have them send you like a bound printed copy, which is something that I have, you know, I like to do because I don't, I don't like PDFs that much, but you can, you know, if you find, like, say, a particular edition of Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, and you want that as a book, you can send that out and do that, or something like that. So, you know, I'm just, just saying, new edition coming out, very exciting, added little tidbits, but if you want the original thing, the core thing, you can just get that for free online, or you can ask me and I'll send it to you. No worries. So, that's fun. That's book news. Uh, another exciting thing now that we've entered 2021, is that here on, on Witch Hassle, I have been making a diligent effort to include with every episode a bit of plague magic. And I said I would do that until the end of 2020, and I have indeed. I am a wizard of my word, as all sorcerers should be, perhaps. I don't know. I'm not here to put ethics on you. You can do your own ethics. We all, I think, know where I stand ethically on a lot of things. I'm basically a a very nice altruistic communist, I like to think. I try to be. You know, we, we, we try to live up to our own expectations of ourselves as well as we can. Where was I going with this? Oh, right. So it's 2021. I've done the thing. I'm off the hook. Yay me. But that doesn't mean I'm going to stop. So today we have one for you as well, another Plague Magic Minute. And our Plague Magic Minute is going to focus on a particular plague protective amulet called the Xenexton. So I first came across the Xenexton um, in an episode of a different podcast, uh, Radio Free Golgotha, hosted by Al Cummins and Jesse Hathaway-Diaz, who have both been on this show and are both very lovely people. You should check out the podcast. It's great. I think it was probably the episode on St. Roche, since he's a plague saint, but I don't remember. Uh, so don't quote me on that. You might just have to listen to all of them. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but the Zedexton is a plague-protective amulet that was created by Paracelsus, though according to Martha Baldwin writing in the Johns Hopkins Bulletin of the History of Medicine, our first clear description of it comes from Oswald Kroll's Basilica Chemica. And so the version that I'm going to give you now of how to make one comes from the 1670 English edition of Kroll, translated and enlarged by John Hartman. And if you want to make a Xenexton, so Xenexton is basically a, a cake that you wear as an amulet. It's a little a little tasty cake uh, made of terrible poisons. And the premise is that it's so imbued with malefic energies and just pure evil and danger that it draws the dangers of the plague from your body by pure sympathy. That the plague is more attracted to the likeness of itself in this amulet than it is to your body in so it, it, it saves you from the wicked deeds and cruelties of the plague this way. Very fun, very exciting. Uh, so Kroll tells us via John Hartman that the first thing you need to do is when the sun and moon are in Scorpio, you need to make yourself a steel tube in which to press the cakes. And the two sort of plungers on either side should be made such that they will put the image of a scorpion on one side and a serpent on the other of this cake. So you've got this little cake uh, and it's got some some patterning on either side, sort of like an Oreo. And you're supposed to do this 
when the sun and moon are entering Scorpio, and when you make the cake, you're also supposed to do that when the sun and moon are in Scorpio, or at the very least when the moon is in Scorpio. But this cake, what is the cake made of, you ask? Well, exciting stuff. Because it is honestly, it's good that you have until Scorpio season to make this, because getting the ingredients might be a bit of a do. So our, our first ingredient for our Zenexton is 18 toads that have been dried in the heat of the sun in the open air, and they have been pulverized. And we are given two separate notes of warning about the smell of these toads. We are told in the body of the text that we are to stop our nostrils and turn away our heads. And there is also just an added little note, unless they be well and quickly dried, they stink and are difficultly beaten. And you know, to stink and be difficultly beaten, we all should be so lucky. Uh, but so 18 toads, that's, that's just one ingredient. Then we have white crystalline arsenic, so a poison. Then red arsenic, or orpiment and you know both of these you know it's arsenic it'll kill you uh red arsenic is also known as realgar and has been historically used in rat poisons and in a compound called bull's blood which is said to have been used by midas and themistocles to commit suicide orpiment is just a different kind of arsenic it's slightly more orange in color and it has been found in the Taj Mahal and the tomb of Tutankhamun in the wall decorations. So, you know, two famous tombs are ornamented with this arsenic. Very kind of, if not necromantic, very much sort of like, very much in the vein of like a poison that lives its life in the land of death. And it's also apparently been used to tip poison arrows, which is fun. Uh, our next ingredient, root of Dittany, which is the name of, uh, so Dittany is the name of a couple of plants. Uh, Dick. Tamnus albus is one of them, and it's known as the burning bush because its oils cause it to catch fire when it's hot out. And apparently touching the leaves can cause phytophotodermatitis, which is a situation where you get skin inflammation when you come into contact with chemicals that make you sensitive to light. So that's really, you know, turning the sun against you, which, you know, in some traditions, the sun is the great malefic, uh, which is which is fun. Uh, so... Next ingredient, tormental, which is also known as sinkfoil, bloodroot, or just biscuits, which is a great name for a cat as well. So if you want to name your cat biscuits, it's not just the food or the action of making biscuits, it's also apparently this plant that goes into as an exon. Then we've got pearls, which have not been bored, corals, uh, fragments of oriental hyacinth, which is apparently a plant that contains toxic alkaloids, so that's fun. Uh, oriental emeralds, which is a, a, an oriental emerald is a green kind of corundum, and oriental crocus which is another plant. So you are supposed to combine these together, and we are also told that because of how bad it's going to smell, we can also throw in some musk or some amber just to protect ourselves from that. So that's, you know, a nice little admonition. And so we are to, to mash this all up and then dissolve tragacanth and water of roses till it be like a mucilage, and then impaste the powders and form them with the sun and moon being in Scorpio, or at least the moon, into round pentacles and imprint them with the two the two images on either side. You can also apparently make it in the form of a heart and tie it up in red silk. But when we when we make this, we are supposed to tie it up in, in silk ribbon and wear it as a little amulet over the heart. And we are told it not only preserves from the pestilence, but hinders whereby the body is the less infected with venoms or astral diseases. It attracts the venom from within and externally consumes it. So that's very fun. And actually, if you check out this this uh, 1670 English version of it, there isn't just the recipe for your standard Zaxxon. There's also a recipe for the platinum double... Uh, emerald class 
Zenex Tom. It involves, I think, gold and like the thing you do with the toad is more complicated. So like, you know, if you really want to like upsell your Zenex Tom client, this book has you covered, which is a lot of fun. I can put a link to it in the show notes. Why not? Why wouldn't I? So that's your Plague Magic Minute. Very fun. If anybody makes this an exton, I'd love to see a picture of it. I, I feel like for legal purposes, I can't tell you to do it. In fact, I should tell you not to do it because there are so many poisons involved. I don't actually know the legality of some of these plants. I probably should have looked that up. So maybe don't do it. But if you do do it against my wishes and in a way for which I am entirely not liable, I really should get a lawyer. Please do send me a photo because it sounds very cool. Unless that makes me an accessory after the fact. One of us should Google that. I'm sure it's not illegal. Probably not. Who knows? Are laws even real? It's, we all live on the internet now. Nothing is, it's fine. So that's your Plague Magic Minute. Super fun. Probably going to be more of them in the coming year. Maybe I'll be more sporadic. Maybe I'll do double. Who knows? I'll be unpredictable. It, it's, it's always, it's always nice. So here's my interview with Fez on botanical curses and poisons, the shadow lives of plants. And what can I say about Fez? Fez is a great folklorist, a great illustrator. This book is full of lovely illustrations. And it was just a really wonderful chat. And I think the one thing you need to know going in is that we talk about aconite a fair amount, which if you haven't heard of it, it's more commonly known by the name Wolfsbane. And that is mythorically, mythologically, am I just making that word up? It's folklorically tied, at least according to Ovid, to the spit of Cerberus. So that's, that's fun. So here's my chat with Fez. I've uh, shut the cats downstairs, so we shouldn't be disturbed. <laughs> ah, amazing. Yeah, my, I think my cat, if, if she were in the room, she would be a very energetic participant in the conversation because she... Yes, lots of yelling, lots of... Uh attention seeking it's uh in a way it's nice to know that that there are things that my cat and i have in common which is a great deal of yelling uh (laughs) so let's let's talk for a moment about the history that humanity has living side by side with poisonous plants what do you feel like our our relationship as a species has been with the poisonous plants around us historically i mean we have a very good history with plants in general, whether they're poisonous or not. Um, by nature, we are farmers. Um, agriculture has been responsible for a lot of our evolution as a species. And so plants have always come side by side with that. We use them for food and for medicine. Uh, we use them to build shelter for our clothing. We even use them just to improve the scent in rooms, um, historical use of strewing plants that would be thrown on the floor and then as you walk over them they would release a scent and poisonous plants are exactly the same uh, they serve a purpose we have a uh, a great history of killing each other and um and poisoning has just been a a great way to do that it's often undetectable um it's very hard to avoid especially when put in food or drink or clothing and and so i think we have we've taken poisonous plants in the same way that we've taken non-poisonous plants and and very much use them to our benefit and we've been doing this for thousands thousands of years there are even in the bible in the old testament there's a suspected poisoning Uh, one of the high priests is remarked to have died from a stroke um, but more recent 
more recent scholars think that it may have actually been aconite poisoning in response to some of his um, decisions that he made. And they're talked about in great deal in uh, Greco-Roman literature as well. Um, the Romans in particular loved poisoning each other. And, uh, and poisonous plants were very easy to grow, very easy to get their hands on. Uh, they used it so much to the point where it was well, where certain plants were known as inheritance plants because they would be used to knock off relatives, parents, older siblings um, to ensure that the person who was using it would be coming into their inheritance sooner. It actually got to a point, I think, where aconite was banned in Rome because it was so easy to grow, uh, be found in gardens because it's a beautiful plant as well. And they actually had to ban it from public spaces because it was being used so much. Around the same time, there was uh, the king of Pontus at the time, Mithridates, was so afraid of being poisoned that he took small amounts of poisons every single day to build up a tolerance to them and put a lot of work into coming up with a general antidote to poison. Uh, when he was eventually captured in war, uh, he tried to poison himself to avoid being taken captive and it failed, obviously. Um, but he was very famous for putting a lot of early research into um, into antidotes because people were terrified of being knocked off by their enemies, uh, even by their family, by their children, and by friends, anyone who stood to gain anything from their death. And, and this continued throughout history, even in the 1500s or so. Um, Henry VIII, for example, in England, uh, he was terrified of being poisoned and he actually made poisoning unlawful. It wasn't until then, um, oh. in 1531. And uh, the punishment for it was to be boiled alive, which is a horrifying, horrifying punishment, really. There's a whole uh, theory about why he brought that in. They think that he actually tried to get someone killed and it didn't work. So he brought in this uh, punishment to get rid of the person that he'd hired to do the killing. But this horrible punishment was in use for about six years. I think three people were punished to be boiled alive. And it was later appealed by his son uh, six years before he died of poisoning. So, you know, throughout history, it's we've been using poisonous plants for, I say for their intended purpose. Obviously, they didn't evolve for our use, but we've been using them for poisoning for many, many years. But outside of killing other people, they actually do have a purpose. Um, they have been used in medicine for just as long as we've been using them to kill each other. Um, they There are a lot of plants that you can use as a purge. So to induce vomiting or diarrhea in someone who is ill, so someone who's eaten something they shouldn't have or someone who needs to empty their organs or as an anaesthetic as well. So common plants like mandrake, like poppy, have been used as medical anaesthetics. Not so much nowadays uh, because we have ones that are a lot more reliable, but they used to be used in an early anaesthetic that was called a dwale, which was where the juices of certain plants would be soaked into a sponge and then the sponge would be dried. And when they needed to knock someone out for very early surgeries, they would then soak it in boiling water and get the person to inhale the steam, which would induce a coma. It was very hard to control the amount that they would get from that. And it often killed people just as much as it knocked them out. So obviously, as soon as we had more reliable ways to do this, it went out of popularity. But even nowadays, we still use the extracts of plants in medicine. Uh, for example, digitoxin, which comes from foxgloves, are used for heart conditions. But I think nowadays, nowadays, poisonous plants are really just a curiosity. I think we tend to see plants as harmless. We're used to seeing them in the house, in gardens, looking beautiful, in bouquets. And so the idea that 
they can still be poisonous, that there are ones that we have to warn our children not to eat or certain houseplants that you can't have if you have pets that are likely to chew on them. I think that's really interesting to us because it's it's unfamiliar and it kind of brings that little bit of fear back into our lives of, oh, well, we thought this was harmless, but actually it isn't. Is that is that where this project sort of got its start, this idea of reintroducing this element of fear or danger into these these things that have sort of become, I guess, we we become desensitized to their to their potential through just um, seeing them all the time, or was it or was it sort of something to do with I don't know I I imagine since you did your book on on beneficial plants folk magic and healing that there sort of has to be the the shadow side to that as well like where where was this project born Yeah, that's that's exactly where it came from actually. Um, the first book, Folk Magic and Healing focused solely on plants that had medicinal value whether they have them now or whether they were used for uh, medicine in the past and when i was doing the research for that book there were so many that i couldn't put in there that i still found were really interesting and that i wanted to talk about but there was no chance to because it didn't quite fit into it so when the book got picked up by liminal 11 who are the publishers they said that you know they wanted this expansion that if there was anything else i had could i add it and i mentioned these ones that i've been setting aside and so they gave me that opportunity to write the second book which embraces the slightly more morbid side of it and folk magic is in its nature very english obviously i am english um and i i've studied english folklore for quite a long time as well so the plants that i was speaking about there are very local to the british isles and so this in many ways was an excuse to look at other countries as well, because obviously there are poisonous plants that grow in the Northern Hemisphere, but a lot of the ones that are the really interesting one are Southern Hemisphere. So for me, it was an excuse to really kind of dig into the mythology and into different legends. And obviously you have to do it in a, a very sensitive way. But that was really fascinating to me. It was, it was a really nice excuse to actually be doing some more learning. That's really lovely. So is when you when you when you sort of look into folklore, is your interest in it mostly just this 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 idea that these things are just beautiful fodder for curiosity, or is there a sense of of preserving a kind of history or a kind of relationship with with the landscape that comes from this folklore? Because I mean, this idea that you know things like you mentioned earlier that that one of the ways that we might preserve and transmit information about the poisonous or dangerous nature of some plants is through sort of telling these stories to to children as they grow up. Where where is the the sort of attraction to folklore for you? In many places. <laughs> it's that's a very big question actually. I think folklore is fascinating. Like you say, these are stories that we have been telling ourselves, telling our families, our friends for thousands of years. And and some of them are just warnings, just sort of saying, you know, don't don't go into the forest or don't disrespect you know this area that you live in some of them are also very historical as well um there's a one which i love telling and it's not necessarily plant-based but there's a creature in norfolk called the tiddy mun and the the east coast of england is very marshy it's swampland uh, we call it the fenlands and the tiddy mun back in sort of pre 161700s was a beneficial creature. He was a harvest spirit that they would give offerings to. He stopped the villagers from flooding. 
he protected them, basically. And then in the 1700s, when the Dutch came to the Fens and drained them, he became an angry spirit. And all of the stories of him from that point onwards would be him luring people into the Fens, drowning them, getting them lost. And the only people that he would still protect were the original villagers who had lived in the area. So telling these stories and creating these these creatures and these spirits of areas are a really great way to tell the history as well and to reflect the attitude of the people who lived there at the time and who went through these. So historically, they're just really interesting to read into and to have a look at why things changed. But for me, I think I love the idea that some of these stories can help reconnect our lives to nature. I think that a lot of people take the countryside for granted, especially if you live in an area where you've got beautiful countryside nearby, but people tend to travel to beauty spots. They tend to go to the beach when they have a free weekend or they'll climb a mountain or go on this long hike. But people forget that we also have a lot of beauty on our doorsteps as well. I saw something recently, which I thought was fantastic, where someone had gone on a walk just around the local neighborhood and using a piece of chalk, they had written out the common names of all of the weeds that were growing on the pavement so that people walking by weren't just paying attention to the weeds, but were actually learning what they were. And I think that a lot of people have forgotten that, have, you know, you look at a weedy pavement and you think, oh, that's neglected or it's unloved. But people have, they've lost an interest in common plants and what you're seeing in your gardens. And I think the stories that are connected to these plants, it shows the history behind them, it shows the uses behind them. And and hopefully, I'd like to think that once people understand that even behind the common daisy, there is this, this rich culture and this history behind them, stories that were told about them, hopefully people will appreciate them more. And I think that's the value of folklore, especially folklore that's connected to plants. So I I was struck by a connection that you mentioned in the book between certain plants and and dangerous gases, some of them uh, poisonous, some of them uh, quite flammable. What are some some ways in which these these dangerous plants can act upon the human body besides, you know, simply, you know, if you eat it, it will pose some sort of danger? I mean, you mentioned putting incorporating poisonous plants into people's clothing at some point. In, in Rome, was this? Or? Yes, uh, I'm going to try and remember what this is off the top of my head. So I think that was one of the stories about Hercules, potentially. Oh. There was a there was a figure in Greco-Roman mythology who was killed because his robe was soaked in, I think it was aconite, because that was the one that everyone loved using at the time. But it was mm. soaked in this poisonous juice, and then when he put his robe on, it soaked through his skin and killed him. And I cannot for the life of me remember who that was. <laughs> but I mean, there's, um, a, there's a story where Heracles, I think his clothing is soaked in, in maybe a mixture of things that include the 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 seminal fluid of a, of a dying centaur. Like it's some sort of trick that is played as like a dying last gambit. And I think that causes his skin to burn off or something like that. Yes, that is the one that I'm thinking of. And I can't remember which plant it was that was involved in that as well. But like you say, I think it was a mixture of, of juices, charmingly. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, so you mentioned the, the flammable gas. Uh, so that is the Fraxinella, which is a European plant. And it, in its leaves, um, it secretes an oil that forms around it 
like a, a miniature flammable atmosphere. And the reason why it does that is because it's trying to encourage wildfires. So its seeds have developed in a way that when a fire clears the area, those seeds are one of the very first to grow. So it purposely makes itself self-combust, clears the area of other plants, and then its seeds are ready to grow in this area where they have no challenge. And that's quite common, actually, in a lot of grasses. Kogon grass in the Philippines is the same. But yeah, there's, there's actually a number of plants out there that use wildfires to give themselves an advantage over other plants. But there are there are a lot of really nasty ways, actually, that plants have evolved, whether intentionally or not intentionally. So, for example, nettles, a lot of people are aware that when you brush against a nettle, it stings you. And it's because they have these tiny little hairs on them that are filled with neurotoxins. Mostly it's an inconvenient if you brush against like a standard European nettle. Um, but in Australia, there is a plant called the stinging bush. And the neurotoxin in those hairs can actually cause pain for up to two years. Oh and it's God. It's a long time. There are actually stories and it's always hard to to actually follow them back to their origins. So you have to take them with a grain of salt. But there are stories of people having committed suicide because it's actually more. It's easier to bear the thought of killing yourself than it is to live with this pain for a very long time. And then there are also there are plants that have these defensive mechanisms for what seems like no real purpose. Um, for example, the blackthorn, uh, so we know it as a slow tree, but the blackthorn have spines that are really quite long and the tips are very, very delicate. And if you get pricked by them, it's quite likely that the tips will break off. The human nerves in particular are very sensitive to the bacteria that those thorns are coated in and it can cause inflammation and infection to the nerves and the joints. So a lot of people who've gone out picking slows have gotten pricked by these thorns and ended up with quite severe infections just because of the bacteria on them. So yeah, there, there, there are a lot of ways that plants can be dangerous, even without poisons. And not just to people, um, they can be dangerous to the garden as well. Like a lot of plants use a technique called allelopathy, which it discourages other plants from growing near them. So in the same way that some plants will use wildfires to clear the area so that they can grow, other plants will use this technique. Um, so walnut trees, eucalyptus trees, uh, there are a number of them that use it and the roots will secrete. Some of them use acids, some of them use oils, some of them use chemicals and they can stifle other plants. They can kill off the roots or they can starve them and actually stop them from metabolizing to make sure that they don't grow too close to them so that the plant that is using this technique has access to the most sun, water, nutrients. It's really interesting. I mean, it's it's honestly a bit shocking to learn how how violent the world of plants <laughs> can be. Um, Very cutthroat. Yes, my goodness. But in this like plant eat plant world, is there? I mean, you mentioned this idea that you know there are a lot of fairly mundane plants that have this sort of secret potential to them. In terms of like plants that someone might see every day, I think most of the listenership of this of this show is in the states and in the UK. But like. For someone, say, living in one of those two areas, are there are there incredibly common plants that are secretly hiding this this murderous intent in them? There, there are quite a few. Again, surprisingly. So let me think. There is, I suppose, the most common one is the presence of cyanide in plants. Hmm. So a lot of people have either in their gardens or they've seen in local parks laurel bushes growing. Our laurel bushes, when you break the leaves, uh, they secrete 
cyanide or they secrete a, a liquid which gives off cyanide gas in very small amounts so it's very rare that it can harm but there have been stories of people who've been cutting down these bushes and put them in the back of their car to drive to, to a place to get rid of them who've reported feeling dizzy or having headaches because of the cyanide fumes and it used to be that insect collectors would take the leaves and crush them up and put them inside a pot and then if they caught a specimen that they wanted to display they would put it in the pot so that they would die of the cyanide fumes rather than damaging the body and you can find cyanide in um, in the kernels of almonds cherries peaches apple pips as well obviously i don't think anyone's going to eat enough apple pips to kill themselves with cyanide. Um, but there is this brilliant anecdote, which I quite like, um, from the England as well. So in England, we have two major areas where we create cider. We've got the West Country and we have Norfolk. So bear in mind that this anecdote comes from a Norfolk cider maker. So I think it's designed to slander the West Country cider makers. But in the West Country in particular, the way that cider was created was that the apples would be crushed between two millstones to get the juice out. And obviously the pips would then get crushed as well. And since many, many years ago, farm workers used to be paid half in money, but then half in a salary of either cider or ale, they would be drinking a lot of cider. And so the story is that the farm workers in the West Country would be slightly mad because they were ingesting cyanide on this regular basis. Like I say, it's probably slander, but it's it's quite interesting to to hear how, you know, these, these stories have spread. It's honestly kind of reassuring, um, given that I, so I come from a part of the United States that I think has a kind of long folklore history of, you know, the slightly off rural farmer who is who is a dangerous person. And also, honestly, is uh, my hometown is where America's prohibition movement started because they used to pay people in rum. So it's nice to know that there's a kind of universality to these sorts of things. Oh, definitely. I mean, who doesn't want to get paid in alcohol? Let's be honest here. I mean, you know, it is it is nice. I'm sure it makes the hours go by faster. <laughs> Exactly, it does. But um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of plants out there that you you wouldn't really think twice. And even in the house plants that we have, uh, there's a very common one, which is quite a popular house plant called Dumcane, as a Diffenbachia, which has a little like a nettle. It's got these tiny little hairs on the leaves that can, if ingested, can cause the throat to swell up and the tongue to swell up and can cause you to go mute, which is why it's called the dumb cane. And it is native to uh, to the West Indies, and it actually used to be used as a punishment for disobedient slaves, where they would be forced to ingest these leaves. And it wouldn't kill them, it wouldn't do them any harm, but it would cause them to lose the ability to speak for a number of days and probably made it quite difficult to eat, uh, to drink as well. So there are all these little stories in this history of plants that we just, we see every single day and you don't really think about it. But I find them really fascinating. So so the book is Botanical Curses and Poisons. So I am curious because I feel like plants don't necessarily come up in, I think, a lot of people's conceptions of the idea of a curse, except for, I mean, there are some plants in, in sort of American folklore, you know, uh, that have the, you know, devil's shoestring, devil's claw, that I think might easily sort of lend themselves just because the word devil's in there. But like, what are, what are some ways in which a plant might curse or be cursed, at least in a sort of folkloric sense? There are some very weird ones out there. <laughs> there are many. Um, and in fact, a lot of them, I think, don't really come from any real, any real reason, but a lot of plants become associated with death or with ghosts or curses 
sometimes because of the location from where they grow. I know that willow trees, for example, are, are very closely associated with death because they grow at water sites. They grow in very neglected areas, very kind of spooky areas. And yew trees as well, because they're commonly planted in cemeteries, have become associated with death. Um, sometimes it's the stories behind them and the reasons why they come to be known as curse is actually lies that have been spread. So everyone knows about Mandrake. Supposedly this little person is the roots and when you pull it up it screams and if you hear the scream you'll die. This was actually a a lie that was spread by the people that were trying to grow mandrake because, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of plants were used as very early anaesthetics, so they had a great value to healers and to herbalists. But mandrake, which is one of the, the most convenient plants to them, it takes about three years for the roots to mature in a way that makes them valuable. So to stop people from pulling them up, from digging them up for any other reason, this story about them killing people if they were dug up was spread to stop people from doing that so that they may have a chance to live to three years so that people could use them for medicine. So sometimes it just, you can't really tell the reason why the stories get spread, but there are certain ones that have just become become associated with curses. Um, One of my favourite ones, I think, is the willow tree. So the willow has very long and very bendy branches, and it's very popular for knot magic. So knot magic comes originally from Egypt, where it was used by sailors. And the idea was that you would tie three knots in a rope, and as you would undo each rope, it would summon up a new wind that would help fill the sails. The concept of using knots in magic has spread since, and in Germany, the concept of tying a knot into a willow branch would place a killing curse on someone. In Ireland, the idea of tying a knot in a willow branch would be done when you were trying to ask for a wish, and then when the wish was granted, you would untie it again. In England, you would tie a knot in a willow branch to undo an unwanted baptism. So it's interesting how the concept of using knots in magic and especially in willow branches, has spread, but for completely different reasons. Just to go back for just a second there, when you say an unwanted baptism, because <laughs> they they did it poorly, or no one no one showed up to the baptism? Like, why would you want to, just out of curiosity, what, what would make sort of a, a baptism unwanted? So I suspect, and this is, this is purely my opinion, but I think that this is something that has probably been spread, likely in the 15-1600s, so the period of the witch hunts in Europe. And the idea of these unholy, unchristian women was really popularised at that time. So I imagine that the concept of this particular form of not magic was probably said by the people who were very anti-witch that were saying, oh, and they even do this to make themselves more unchristian. That's my theory anyway. It's It's one of these, it's a curious thing because in the 1900s and in the 1800s as well, folklore became hugely popularized again and a lot of people headed out into rural counties and started gathering these stories and so there's actually a huge wealth of information in books that were published in this time there were magazines that were published in this time that were just collections of information people were finding and there's this huge wealth of stories of you know this plant does this or on this specific day if you turn three times around this then it achieves this And unfortunately, none of them were ever really researched into any further. So we don't know the origins of these. We don't necessarily know exactly why they came about. So there are a lot of stories like that where we just have to guess at what the origins of them probably were. 
And I think that's that's probably one of those. Do you do you find that right now there is sort of a similar kind of upsurge in curiosity about folklore happening, or or do you feel like that's sort of been maintained consistently since this sort of this period? That's hard to say. I think obviously having this interest that I have and writing the books that I do, I think I am in a bubble of people with this similar niche interest. So I could jump on that and say, yes, there's definitely this resurgence because I follow online. I have friends, you know, who are very interested in this. But even if I look outside of that, obviously having having published a book about folklore and and having a second one coming up, I can look at the sales and say, well, people are buying them. And it's not just the people that I know. So there must be there must be a, an increased interest in this. And and I think that potentially it's because our lives have become so removed from the outdoors nowadays. People's lives are busier than they've ever been. People are busy at work. People don't get out in the same way that we used to. They're not working outside as we used to. And I think that people want to reconnect. I think at heart, we as humans are created for the outside. I think we reflect that in the fact that we have houseplants, that we tend our gardens. I think we're always going to be drawn to nature and and everyone loves a good story. So I think I think people are becoming more interested in it again in, a, in an attempt to reconnect with what we've lost. That makes sense. I was going to actually ask you if there if you see a connection between this sort of upsurge interest with there seems to be a big I don't know if resurgence exactly is, is the word for it, but there seems to be a, a great explosion in interest in animism as a way of approaching the world right now. And I wonder if these two things are interrelated, but it sounds like they sort of would be coming from a similar space. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember even when I was younger, so even even 20, 25 years ago, I remember there was this, this big interest in, you know, connect with your spirit animal or, you know, find out what your totem creature is. And obviously that's very... Um, that's very disrespectful to a lot of cultures that do, that have these traditions uh, that have followed these these religions. But even you know even that long ago, it was something that people were interested in. You could go on these meditations that would help you to meet your creature, and you know I I think that people like the idea that they have some sort of a spirit guide that connects them to the earth and that connects them to nature. And whether that is misguided, whether that's appropriated, I think that people will always want to find some way to feel reconnected with the earth because we we just don't anymore. It's it's very rare for us to get that chance to really go out and, and to spend a full day outside and to really feel like we're a part of the earth that we have. Yeah. Actually, something that I, I, I found surprising and wonderful about the book was the prevalence of so many plant specific spirits in these various folklores and i mean like i you know i i was familiar with the idea of you know trees having a spirit because i think that's a pretty common trope but there are a number of sort of plant specific ones could you talk a bit about say i don't know like the the kartoffelwolf or or something like that yeah sure so as you say like everyone knows about tree spirits there are there are tree spirits and forest spirits across the world and if you look at any kind of early religion any early belief system there's also harvest spirits everywhere because as early farmers we were so reliant on the land and so reliant on plants that we created these spirits and these deities to reflect our daily life they were warnings to stay away from certain areas or certain animals they were warnings to respect the environment and so you mentioned the kartoffel wolf 
which is a Germanic creature. And Germany is historically a very agricultural area, and they have this this whole host of field demons and harvest goblins, and some of them are beneficial, some of them are mischievous, some of them will help out. And similar sprites to these are found across Europe in particular. There are some Lithuanian ones which are very, very similar. There are quite a lot in the Baltic states, actually. And people would give offerings or leave offerings to them for their help, whether that was help in having an easy harvest or having a bountiful harvest. And so you will actually find in in a lot of mythology across very agricultural areas, there are a lot of these very localized spirits. If you look further afield, one of the areas that I was looking into and doing a lot of research into, because I'm always aware that as an English author, I I don't have any ownership over any mythology beyond the British Isles. And so I'm always very careful when I'm researching into new cultures and new countries to tell the stories in a genuine way and to get a full understanding of the history. But one of the areas that I really started finding really fascinating was the mythology of the Philippines. And there are a lot of banyan forests in in that kind of area of the world. Banyan tree is, it can be one of many kind of species of trees, but they're ones that start off in the canopy. So they they grow on other trees and then they grow down to the earth and then they engulf them and and kill off their host tree but then they become these very dense forests and so there was this creature uh, called the tikbalang i may have pronounced that wrong but i think that's how it's pronounced which was this long-legged humanoid with the head and the hooves of a horse which would mischievously lead people astray and it would turn their clothes inside out and it would get them lost and eventually they'd become engulfed in the forest And some people believe that it was actually a garden of the spirit world and that it was turning people away from the gateways to protect them. So in areas like that, where you have these heavily forested areas, there's a lot of warning about walking in the forest on your own and getting lost. And the the Philippines as well is is a great example of folklore reflecting history. Their native native deities were known as uh, Diwata, which which just translates to deity. But when the Spanish came into the Philippines and conquered them, they became called by the Spanish just enchanted because they didn't believe it was possible for so many gods to exist at once. So they kind of downgraded them. But then the locals who refused to do this, they started calling them Tautomona, which means the people before history. So they were still kind of holding on to that connection to them. But the Spanish brought in their own mythology and their own creatures that they believed in. So the locals started calling them those not like us. But then those creatures have stayed in Philippine mythology and they still exist now. So they've kind of been engulfed into it and made a part of the mythology of the area, but still kept separate in a way. And I find that really interesting how, and and this happens in many areas where you've had um, invaders moving in. For example, in the British Isles, we have such a mash of creatures because we've had so many people coming into the country and taking over. You get this this mixing pot of mythologies, and that's that's always really cool. Actually, this this leads me to wonder something. Like, so when you know you you mentioned this idea that you know a lot of people they they don't spend the day in nature like they used to. Do you do you spend a lot of time sort of wandering around the forest, 
interacting with the plants there? I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I'm lucky to live in an area that's quite near to a lot of forests and a lot of nature reserves. So I always try at least once or twice a week to go out for a walk for at least several hours. But it's still never the same as you know, someone who, for example, works on a farm and is going to be out there every single day. It's it's not quite the same connection, but I, tr- I try and be connected to it as much as possible. So you're a talented, a celebrated uh, botanical illustrator. And did the sort of illustrations come out of this feeling of connection or wanting this connection or was it just sort of you, you know you're an illustrator you're around the plants the two things eventually kind of converge yeah i think they did just end up converging in a way when i was younger my my mum is also an artist and she used to take me out for walks even when i was three four five years old would go out to the local lakes or the nature reserves and would always take a sketchbook with us so I was drawing plants from a very young age. And and I think when it came to writing the first book, Folk Magic and Healing, I knew it needed illustrations because I think if you're talking about plants, especially in a non-fiction way, it always helps to have illustrations to show exactly what you're talking about. Because I find as well, you might mention, for example, St. John's Wort or, or Soul Thistle. And even if people recognise the names, they don't necessarily know what they look like. And then if they can compare it to an illustration, they might think, oh, I, I have that growing in my garden or I know that one so I actually started drawing a lot more plants when I started writing these books because it was convenient at the time but now I I just love it I think it's a really nice way to encourage us to just slow down and observe as well I mean the illustrations in this book are really lovely and I I know we've talked a lot about the folklore but I but I don't want it to get lost in this in this conversation just how wonderful the visuals are even though we are sort of stuck in an audio medium actually i so i mentioned to you know the general hoi polloi of the universe that i was going to be speaking to you and asked if anyone wanted me to to bring any of their questions to you as a you know a resource to the community and all that and somebody asked what is something that is often overlooked or ignored when it comes to botanical illustrations because you mentioned slowing down so is there something that that even that if one were to rush one might miss or omit in some way that's a tough question especially on the illustration part because i think it depends it depends on whether you're drawing for educational purposes or illustrative purposes because educational botanical illustrations they have to be accurate and and often when you see them they'll they'll show a plant in three stages of life so you'll have just on one stem you'll have the buds and the flowers and the fruit all in one. And obviously that never happens in real life, but it's just there to show what it looks like in different stages. But you have to be really accurate in showing what they look like. But then obviously if you're just illustrating for fun or for, you know, for commercial purposes, I suppose, you can put a lot more of your style in there. And I have started in in my illustrations that aren't related to the books to start relaxing a little bit and coming up with shorthand terms for well this is this is kind of what the flower looks like you get the feeling of it but you probably couldn't take this illustration out and find what plant it is in real life because it doesn't look exactly like it but I, I i do put in my books these warnings to say don't use these illustrations to identify especially with the poisonous plants because i don't want someone to go out and think oh well this mushroom doesn't look like the one mentioned in the plant in the book so it must be 
fine to eat. I, I don't want that happening. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so there are definitely two different types. There's the educational and then there's the stylistic. You know, it's interesting because I, you know, I was when I was doing sort of the, the background research for this interview, I, I noticed that I think you, you say on your site that your illustration work, especially things like, say, the, the tattoos that you design, have a sort of botanical bent, but there's this, this sort of occult or folkloric influence to them. And you've done work for for places like, for example, Cunning Folk Magazine, which is a magazine that seems to be part of the kind of witchcraft revival that's happening right now. But I get the sense, and and correct me, of course, if I'm if I'm if I'm off the mark here, but I get the sense that you you yourself are not a, a practitioner of any of these sorts of these sorts of I guess you would say alternative spiritualities or something like that. What um what is your relationship with with things like magic and witchery? Is it just sort of part of the curiosity with folklore or is it something else? You're calling me out here because no one's meant to know. <laughs> no, I, I do have a relationship with the occult. I suppose that that's how I'd phrase it. I, I grew up in a very religious environment. So in my childhood, I was discouraged from exploring anything that would be, I suppose, put under the umbrella term of occult. But I've always had an academic interest. I think when when you tell a child or don't read about that or don't look into that, it never actually tells them not to look into that. It just makes them think, but why shouldn't I? And then they'll find a way to to research into it. So I always had this interest because I was being told not to. But I never was given that encouragement or that chance to really learn the physical side of things or to get involved in it. But obviously, in writing these books, I've started connecting with a lot of people who do practice. And I've recently started teaching myself to you know, to read tarot. Oh, fun. And so, so I'm getting there slowly. <laughs> um, but for me, it's... I suppose coming at it from someone who has an academic interest but has never practiced, at the moment for me it's a form of meditation and reconnection in a way. So one of the things that I I found when I was writing Folk Magic, so right back at the beginning, was the idea that bramble wood, so the, the wood from blackberry vines, if it's cut on a certain day or a certain weekend of the year and then finessed it can be used as a touch charm. So something that you keep in your pocket and become very familiar with throughout the year just for general protection. Mm. And so I was just curious about this. And so I have blackberries growing in my back garden. I went out and I cut this wood and just in the process of cutting it and sizing it down and stripping the bark and sanding it, just doing things with your hands, especially doing something where you're outside and you're interacting with plants is very meditative for me. And it was really nice to feel like I was being connected to this history and this tradition. And I still carry one of those charms in my pocket because it's just become a thing that I'm familiar with, you know, reaching into my pocket and it's there. And so in many ways, I'm starting to practice it in a way that for me is still very, very natural and very organic. And I honestly think that we we cannot know what's out there, for me at least. I cannot say there's there's definitely a god, there's definitely many gods, there's definitely magic. But I do feel like there's something out there. And and I love the community. This community that I've gathered around me and that I've started branching into is full of wonderful people. And I love seeing what it means to others and how other people connect with it. So I'd still say that I'm I'm connected to the occult, but just in a way that's become very organic for me rather than saying, well, I'm, I'm definitely 
neo-pagan I'm definitely Wiccan like I I can't label it but I do feel as though it's something that is still quite quite dear to me that's really that's really lovely and actually this um this reminds me of so you know the the bibliography in this book is Mm. is robust and wonderful (laughs) huge fan of it and you mentioned that you're sort of you're looking at a lot of the the work of of this sort of like folkloric movement of people tramping off into the countryside to interview folks was there any sort of research you did sort of with this this sort of community as you were putting this together to sort of be like well you know here's what the 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 folkloric texts say but let me talk to i don't know um a 25 year old who's super invested in this and see if they have anything they they want to add yeah um i'm just trying to think so obviously a lot of my research starts with books because it's very easy to think well this is something i'm starting let's get a list of books and do my reading but it's very important to go out and to talk to people so for example there is there's this wonderful museum a couple of hours away from me called the museum of witchcraft in cornwall and they have a library out the back which is full of records that were written by early practicing at least in the witchcraft revival they have journals from practicing witches they've got documents and uh, and the same up in scotland as well i went up to edinburgh to the edinburgh archives where they have a lot of early documentation from the witchcraft trials and who was trialed and what evidence was used against them and what the results of those trials were. So I went out physically to a lot of a lot of museums, a lot of historical places to really have a look at, I suppose to really look into what has been written for, what has been what has been done. If I was if I'd been writing a book about modern occult practices, then I probably would have gone out to find people who are also practicing. But I think as, as the two books that I've written, um, Folk Magic, which is already out, and Botanical Curses, which is out in January, because they're more historical, it's it's mostly been a case of following up on on historical leads. But it's been fantastic. I went to the, um, to the Anik Gardens up in the north, and they have a poison garden, which is just full of poisonous plants. And I actually had a, a personal tour with one of the guards there and really got to talk about the plants and the histories of them. So it's been really great to actually go out and, and have a chat with people who who understand the stories that I'm talking about. This has been a really lovely chat for me. We're kind of running up on time, so I want to make sure we get that we get to this before before we close out. But the book the book is coming out in January of next year. If people want to keep track of you, get updates about the work that you're doing, and also just learn more about what you're up to, where should they go? What should they do? So they can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, my handle is Rostotir, so that's R-O-S-D-O-T-T-I-R, and that's the same on Twitter and it's the same on Instagram. If they're interested in either getting their hands on the first book or pre-ordering the second book, which is out on January the 7th, they can go to the publisher's website. So it's liminal11.com and they can purchase them through there. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for, for, for taking the time to do this chat. This really was wonderfully informative and just just a joy. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Fez. This has been Witch Hassle. By all means, go out and pre-order the book, Botanical Curses and Poisons, The Shadow Lives of Plants, which is coming to us from Liminal 11. And I'll put links to where you can find out more about Fez in the show notes and where you can pre-order the book. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Witch Hassle. 
If you like the show and you want to support the show, we've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash witchhassle. Good luck with the work ahead.